And I entitled today's message, Hard Lessons to Learn, when Jesus intensifies his training. And I just want to begin with one concept to make it personal today. And it's this, and I believe this with all my heart. The true you, who you are at your core, will only be found in Jesus Christ. We have one more over here, Eli. The true you, who you really are, will only be found in Jesus. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is that the majority of our world doesn't know Jesus, and they're completely lost as to who they are. I get so many questions, even amongst believers, and I understand the question, because we're still learning about who Jesus is, but I still, there's so many questions in this world about why am I here? What am I doing? What's my point? Why do I exist? What am I supposed to be about? What was I made for? See, the problem with our current worldview in America is that we're stripping God out of our society and out of our lives in order to try to gain freedom. I understand why the world's doing it. I understand there's a desire to say, quit telling me what to think, quit telling me what to believe, quit telling me about this Jesus guy, get it out of my face. The problem is, when you take out the core of who human beings are, you're left with this massive void, and now you're left in the middle of an open field. You have your freedom, you just don't know what to do with it. And so you sit in this open field and go nowhere. And you're in a smaller bondage than you were in before. You see, I believe that when you know who Jesus truly is, if you know who he is for you, it begins to illuminate who you are and you begin to move out in all your gifting. I believe that very truly. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. To know Christ is to understand your very existence. For Jesus is reality. Say that again. To know Christ is to understand your very existence. When you find Jesus, you will not just find your Lord and Savior, but you will find yourself truly. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, page 694, and the Bible's handed to you. 694. It's Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is where we're going to begin. Let me just read three verses here and we will get started. I'll just pray for the word and then we can dive into it. But let me go ahead and take a look here. Verse 13, 14, and 15. You can kind of follow along there. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? I will tell you that the answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. So the question echoes to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would open up your word to us that we could understand. We're certainly not going to understand because of my preparation. We're certainly not going to understand because of my Talking and talking and talking, Lord, I am not equipped as a human teacher to be able to help out all that much. Because it's spiritually discerned, we will only know if you reveal it to us. Would you open up your word that we might see clearly and react into what we see? Lord, would you transform us in Jesus name? Amen. 
begins with a simple phrase that deserves some explanation. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, okay, well, where's Caesarea Philippi? Well, picture with me like this. Let's say behind me, there's a massive map on the wall up at the top of the map would and, and the whole maps of Israel, right? Which isn't a huge area anyway. But in there, there's two basic hubs of activity, the north and the south. And I'm talking about New Testament now. So in the north, we got a Sea of Galilee. That's kind of Jesus's hometown area where he did the majority of all of his three year ministry. Then down connecting down is the Jordan River goes down to a large body of water at the bottom. And there is near the town of Jerusalem. So you got two big hubs of activity in Scripture. You got Sea of Galilee area and Jerusalem down below. Now, on the southern side of things, more towards the coast on the left of the map would be a city named Caesarea. Well, that's not this city. This is Caesarea Philippi, which is actually in the north. It's 30 miles north of where Jesus normally hangs out. So he takes his disciples up 30 miles and he ends up in a city or a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now, what does that mean? You guys seen the word Caesarea? It has a couple letters. Anytime you have a C and an E and an A and that kind of stuff kind of mixed around in a weird way, you kind of know that it's related to something that says pizza, pizza. Right? Are you all clear on that? All right. Great. So we know that Caesar's in there somewhere. What does it mean? It means Caesar town. So a ruler by the name of Philip, who is in charge of the region, decided to beautify a city, erect an amazing temple on Caesar's behalf, and he renamed the city Caesar town. Problem is, there was a southern one. And he didn't want him to get confused. So he said, well, I've got to add something to it. My name's Philip. Hey, let's call it Caesar town Philip. That's Caesarea Philippi. This is a region that he is now traveling in. Now, all these cities, I don't want to read more into the text than is necessary, but I do want to give you a bit of flavor. All these cities, whether you go in Israel or you go in Turkey or you go in Greece, all these have very rich religious tradition. Every city, every archaeological site that I've been to over there, they all have ruins of temples. Stuff for this God, that God, this God, that God, all over the place. It is completely loaded. Every town was loaded with a new God, right? Well, Caesarea Philippi was no different. But there was two things that kind of highlighted it, at least in Jesus' day. Number one was its history that it used to be called Peneus. Now, Peneus comes from the word Pan. Have you ever heard of anyone named Pan? Okay, well, in Greek mythology, that's who? It's a god, and he's the little goat god. You guys remember the guy with the little flute, the pan flute? That's where we kind of get that idea from. So he plays a little flute, has little hooves, runs around. All right, he's the god of nature. All right? It is believed, according to mythology, he was born here. So the town was named after Pan. Okay? Very clear. So that was a big deal for everybody. It's kind of like, ooh, this is a special place. This is Pan's place. Well, then later on, around Jesus' time, remember, Philip erected this amazing temple, this brilliant marble white temple erected to Caesar. Because the belief was that anyone that became Caesar was a god. So you would literally go to Caesar church. You go into the temple, you pay your homage that Caesar, your boss, your emperor, is God. Now, that seems weird to us. We would never have like a president church. Where you go to the church and talk about how your president is God. 
That seems strange to us. But back in that world day, that was pretty normal. And every Caesar believed that he became deity and that he was deity. And that, of course, you see problems with Alexander the Great. All huge leaders of that day kind of had a bit of a God complex. All right. Well, this was a big deal. You could see this temple from miles away. It's in this type of flavoring that Jesus is walking through this territory. It's almost as if he could look around and go, hey, guys, check it out. They think that guy's a god, that guy's a god, that guy's a god, that guy's a god, that girl's a goddess, that girl's a goddess, right? Who do you say that I am, right? I mean, this is almost the idea that he's trying to drive. Is he said, who do everybody else think that I am? I mean, they think they're a god. What do they think of me? So they give him some answers. And so it's almost like a bunch of little preschool kids, right? He's got his disciples like, ooh, 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 me, me, me. I know, I know, right? And so one of them goes, oh, one of them, they think you're John the Baptist. Where's John the Baptist at this time in the story dead okay he's already been beheaded so he's like oh so he thinks i'm a dead guy okay great fantastic all right well that's kind of weird because i knew him we lived at the same time so why would he suddenly become reincarnated and jump into me that's odd but anyway okay cool john the baptist is intense i'm intense maybe they made that connection what else oh oh i got one i got one okay well what do you think well i say elijah a lot of people think you're elijah okay now who's elijah Elijah is known as basically the big dog prophet of the Old Testament. He's kind of the prince of prophets. He's always known as kind of the epitome of the prophets. Well, that's, that's kind of nice. And they know that when the Messiah comes, Elijah is supposed to come first and usher in the Messiah. So they said, well, a lot of people don't believe you're the Messiah, but they believe you're intense and you're this great guy and maybe you're ushering in the Messiah. He said, all right, who else? Oh, I got one. I got one. Okay, what do you got? Jeremiah which I thought was odd in my reading, because I don't know anything about Jeremiah. I'll tell you right now, I had to do a bunch of research on this one, because I'm thinking, Jeremiah, the only thing I know about that guy is he's called the what prophet? The weeping prophet. So I know he cries a lot. That's about all I know. So I said, what do you mean? What, what, so the guy, that, what, Jesus cries all the time? What's going on? I don't understand. I found out that there was a Jewish belief at the time that Jeremiah the prophet was the guy who hid the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't know that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones. Come on, follow me here. All right, great. Jeremiah, who had the original Ark. Remember, the Ark is gone. That's why the Nazis are looking for it. Okay. Anyway, so the Ark is gone, right? And they believe that Jeremiah, the prophet, hid it, but he's going to come back to life one day, and he's going to, pow, bring out the Ark, right? And then the glory is going to return to Israel, and God's presence will be there, and they win. Okay, I had no idea. So they said, well, maybe you're Jeremiah. Maybe that's what you've come here. And then the rest of them go, yeah, or some other prophet. Kind of like it's a catch-all. Or you're somebody else. Okay, thank you guys. That was helpful. He said, but what about you? Now, that's a plural you, so it's what about y'all, right? What about you guys? What do you guys think? Who do you, plural, say that I am? So he's asking the crew. And then, of course, loud mouth, Peter asks, oh, I know this one. So he raises his hand. I don't know if he raised his hand or not, but anyway, it's funnier. Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ. Now, to us, we always think of Christ as Jesus' last name. That's not true. It's not, hey, there's Jesus Christ, right? H, not middle initial. Got it? We all cool on that? All right. So what does Christ mean? It means Messiah. And literally, it means all the Old Testament prophecies about the awaited one, the promised one, the anointed one, are all fulfilled in you, Jesus. You are Israel's hope. 
That's a pretty big deal. Then he goes one step further. What's the next phrase? The son of the living God. You are deity. You know, he didn't say deity. He said son of God. God begets God. Son of God is nothing less than fully God. For by definition, God can be nothing less than fully God. You are the Messiah. You are my God. Okay, that's a big deal. This is called the Great Confession. You've heard of the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. This is a Great Confession. All right. So he says this, and Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his Hebrew name, or kind of his family name, we'll call it. He named him Peter later. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. What does that mean? It means he didn't learn it from a book. He didn't learn it from other people. Nobody else told him what it was. But God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, ripped the scales off his eyes, and he began to see who Jesus was. Okay? How long has Jesus been with these disciples so far? We don't have a lot of good chronology in Matthew, but we're about to head towards Jerusalem where things are going to wrap up and Jesus had a three-year ministry. So we're going to guess. Okay? So let's say he's been with them, what, two and a half years? Right? So they've been together for a long time. They've seen a lot of stuff. They've seen the miracles. They've seen everything. They've had people walk up, call him the Messiah, including John the Baptist. And it's only now that they really start getting it. Who do you say that I am? In other words, guys, let's re-rock before we move on. You know who I am, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the Christ. The Son of God. All right? In verse 18 and 19, two small verses, you are about to hear a teaching that has brought some of the greatest schisms of history, the greatest divisions of mankind, and verses that have cost hundreds of thousands of lives in two verses. And it all depends on how you read it. Does this stuff matter? It matters a lot to a lot of people. This verse, these two verses, have created the authority structure for two of the largest religions in all of history. You go, really? All hinging on this? Yep, pretty much. So what are the verses? And I tell you that you are Peter, Petros, masculine word, means rock. You are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Just like that. Anybody ever heard of the Pope? Where do you think he came from? This. Why? The Roman Catholic Church's view. The Orthodox Church's view. Everybody heard of the Orthodox Church? You need to because that's an enormous church in the world. Okay, there's Greek Orthodox, there's Coptic Orthodox. You understand what I'm talking about? It's one of the most massive churches in all the world. Okay? The, Greek, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church both follow a concept called apostolic succession. You ever heard of that phrase? What it means is... Their leadership is transferred from the apostles directly. In other words, this guy, 
anointed this guy, who, who launched this guy, who launched this guy, who launched this guy. And there's a very specific line, a chain of command from the top, from Peter himself, who was the first, what? Pope. Okay, now this is where you're starting to find all this authority structure. Now, the Orthodox Church will argue, no, there's not one pope. There are multiple bishops in the world that are God's authority here on earth. There's not one pope. And they got in a big battle about that. Okay? Has the Catholic Church been influential in the last 2,000 years? Okay, where in the world did they get this idea that there is one man on earth that is infallible? Right here. This is the passage. Now, let's be fair. Is that what it says? Well, you can look at it a bunch of different ways. I'm going to give you five different ways to look at it. But we've got to give them some serious credit where I know where they got it from. I mean, it's, you've got to be very honest. He looks at him and he goes, on this rock. In other words, Peter, you're a rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. And not only that, I'm going to give you all the authority. Gates of hell won't stop you. You, whatever you bind on earth, you have God's authority here on earth. Now you guys following why what the Pope says is perfect? Why he's the only one that has the full access and those that he speaks to? Do you, are you guys following that? I mean, it's not. Then let me ask you, is there any backup to it? Well, let's go through it honestly. When Pentecost hit, who was the one that stood up to preach? Peter, Right. When it broke open to the Gentiles, initially from the Jerusalem church, who was the one that gave them access and authorization? Peter. Who's the first listed apostle every time? Peter. Okay, do we all understand where this is coming from? All right. All right. So why wouldn't we agree with that? In our reading of Scripture and our interpretation, why don't we agree with that? Why don't we have a pope in the Protestant Reformation? Because this is a big deal. In the Protestant Reformation. Why don't we? Well, here's a couple things. Number one, Jesus messes with the language. He said, I tell you that you are Petros, masculine, and on this Petra, feminine, I will build my church. Now, masculine and feminine in Greek do not imply girl or boy. It just means that it's a different form of word. Okay. So he just changed the word. Now, if he wanted to, and I verified this, I, I'm in Greek right now, so I went and asked the head of all the Greek department of Western Seminary, who happens to be my professor, I said, you've got to give me some help, man. I'm teaching the Peter passage. What do you got for me? He started laughing. He goes, i got nothing for you. He said, it's really rough. And he said, but I will tell you one thing. If Jesus wanted to point out it was all Peter, he would have said, and I tell you that you are Petros, and on Petros I will build my church. I'll just tell you that. But he didn't. That would have been grammatically accurate. He didn't. He changed it for a reason, and we don't know why. So, five views have emerged throughout history that were very common. Number one, it's Peter. It's all Peter. He's the Pope. Okay, that's number one. Number two, when Jesus said, on this rock, he touched himself and talked about himself. Meaning, I know you're a rock. I'm just a better rock. Right? In other words, you are rock upon this rock, me... You don't know where Jesus was pointing, right? Upon this rock, I will build my church. That was, have you guys ever heard of uh, St. Augustine? He's a church father. That was his view, all right? So he perpetuated that view. Is Jesus truly a cornerstone of the church? 
Yeah, that, that's pretty clear. Okay, well, what about other people said, well, hold on a second. No, it's not that. It's that Peter understood and was enlightened to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And on that truth, that everyone that proclaims that truth, that knows that truth, it becomes a part of the kingdom. So really what Jesus is building on is the truth and the reality of Jesus being God. What's the next view? No, it was Peter's faith. Remember, we have access to God by grace through faith. And so it was Peter's belief and trust because it can't just be truth. Demons know that Jesus is God and they're not saved. So it is the faith that Peter had in who Jesus was and his full trust in him. That's what he will build his church on. So what's the answer? I don't know. I guess I'll let you wrestle with that one, huh? But let me give you four points that whatever you make it out to be, you must include these four points. You may want to write this down. Number one, write down Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says, in paraphrase, the prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church, but Jesus is the cornerstone. You've got to mark that in there. Whatever you make it out to be, who is the core rock? It's always got to be Jesus, no matter what you do with it. But are the apostles and the prophets important? Well, they certainly were. They laid a foundation. Number two, write down the verse, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Who wrote the letters of 1 and 2 Peter? Peter? Okay, right on. So the very guy we're talking about wrote about this. And he wrote what? He said, you all, like living stones, are being built together to make a temple of God. So he started calling all believers what? Rocks. Okay? Number three, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.11. You write that one down. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says that Jesus is the only foundation that matters. Everything else that you build on, you must build on Jesus. And then fourth is a concept. All I want you to do is write down this simple phrase. Church is about people, not institutions. See, here's where we go off base. We keep thinking, well, who's in charge of the big institution of the grand church? What are you talking about? What institution? No, no, no. I mean, like, who's in charge who makes all the rules for the institution, the organization of the church? Jesus would go, what, what organization? What are we talking about? No, 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 it's people. That's what makes up the church. Real quick, we believe the same thing. When we have our new building completed, what are we going to do? All of us as believers, we're going to pick up and we're going to move over there across the parking lot, right? Where's the church going? Over there. But I thought this was a church. No, the church is the body of believers. When we meet in small groups in homes, where does the church go? Into the homes. Anything you make church out to be from a truly biblical standpoint has to be a body of believers. It's always people, not institutions. All right. Does that all give you some clues? All right. Here's my best guess as to what Jesus was trying to say, because I believe it almost grabs all those elements. I believe that Jesus said, Peter, you're absolutely right. My father has revealed to you. That upon what I am about to do and who I am, I will found a church here. 
of which you, my friend, are the first stone with me. As I am the bedrock, we are going to begin to build. Thank you, my friend, and I will take you as a stone. Anyone else? And I will take you as a stone. Anyone else? And as you understand the truth of who I am, as you put your faith in me, you too, like living stones, I will use to build my church. Because it's always been about people. Amen? All right, we move forward. It says this. From that time on, meaning there was a grand change in focus in the ministry of Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Who are those three guys? Those are the three big dog groups of Israel. Okay? Elders are basically the older guys of the city that everyone respected. The chief priests, those were the Sadducees. And the teachers of the law were who? Pharisees. Those three groups make up the ultimate high council called the Sanhedrin, who will ultimately cast out Jesus to be crucified. Right? So he said, at their hands, Sadducees, Pharisees, elders, and the hands of the Sanhedrin, I will be handed over to die. He must be killed, Jesus said, still in verse 21, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What? Wait, hold on. You were just like scholar boy, right? You just said the coolest thing ever. You just got all this praise from Jesus. We're now talking about the fact of whether or not you're Pope guy, right? Now we're all excited about you and you go from superhero to loser in about two seconds. Really? Who do you not want to rebuke? Oh, I don't know. The guy you just called Messiah and God. Okay. What an idiot. You don't start out and go, you're amazing. You're awesome. Here, by the way, I hate when you start talking about this death thing. You're killing morale, right? You don't take him aside. The word there literally means he's kind of throws his hand on him and he pulls it. Jesus, you get over here for a second, right? He just pulls him aside and starts rebuking him. And saying, stop talking about this death stuff that is never going to happen. It's not going to happen to you. We'll defend you if necessary. He said, this will never happen to you. Is this not the same fury that erupted in the garden? You guys remember what happens when Jesus does get arrested? Peter still doesn't get it. Right? He just comes out, yeah, like a ninja with his dagger and starts hacking off people's ears. And Jesus is like, dude, what is wrong with you? Stop. All right, let me get your ear back. Sorry about that. He's a little worked up today, you know. Way too much sugar, you know. Jesus turned, said to Peter, get behind me what? You want that said of you? Oh, man. He just went from the great confession to being called Satan in the next phrase. Wow. Satan? Now, this is literally... The name of the enemy, Satan. But what does Satan really mean? It means adversary. Okay? Now, some people go, he was rebuking Satan, who was uh, working through Peter. Other people go, no, he's talking about Peter himself. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. I think he's talking directly to Peter. Jesus turned to Peter, get behind Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. When's the last time he had someone come to him and try to get him to bypass the cross? Temptation in the desert? Who was that? 
Satan. So he said, hey, Peter, you look awfully familiar. I remember the time when I'm hanging out in the desert, right? And there I am in my weakened state. There I am with a bunch of needs. I have my humanity ripping at me, tearing at me. And I want to give up. I don't want to do this. I'm about to enter into a three-year-long ministry where I'm going to die a nasty death. I'm not okay with it necessarily. I'm okay with it in concept, but I'm afraid. And I think it's going to be hard. And now you, the one that claims to love me so much. Now you step up and you throw another block in front of me. You're trying to deviate me from the cross. You obviously don't get it. If I don't die, you die. Wow. Ask you a question. Let's make it practical. In what way are you acting as Satan to Jesus in your life? Well, let me ask you a quick question. You know, I'm not Satan. I'm a nice person. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Do you think part of Peter's motives were to protect Jesus when he said that? Well, yeah, of course it was. He even says later on, I'll die for you. In other words, I will shield you at all costs. Doesn't matter how great your motives are. Doesn't matter who you're trying to protect. If you are standing in the way of God's will, you're telling Satan to take the night off. I've got this one. Right? Get out of the way. I don't care who you are. I don't care why you're doing it. I don't care how noble you are. If you're in Christ's way, move. Because he's got some stuff that he has to get done. You may not like it, but he's going to get it done. We need to be in conjunction with. We need to run alongside. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. We don't need to be standing in the way. Says so this. Then he called the crowd. Now, as we move on, I'm going to kind of grab a little bit of Mark's gospel, a little bit of Luke's gospel, and kind of filter it in where is necessary. All right? So where I deviate from your Matthew passage, that's what I'm doing. Mark kicks off this next one about the cost of discipleship. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and Luke says, And Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, Luke says, and follow me. It's one thing to get all hyped up and hear a great message and go into martyr's death one day. It's different to try to follow Jesus on the boring days, the days when no one's attacking you, the days when you're bored, the days when you're trying to hide your secret life. Those are the hard days. Are you willing to take up your cross daily? What does it mean to take up your cross? We take that for granted. Well, you remember the Roman form of execution was crucifixion. You literally have to carry your cross beam. You have to pick that up and go, I'm going to go die today. That's what he's telling you every day. For whoever wants to save his life, verse 25, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will find and save it. For what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits his soul, his very self, Luke says? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark adds, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus said in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his and his Father's glory. With the holy angels. For indeed, Matthew says, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and the kingdom of God coming in power. 
All right. When I tell you, let's say we're all sitting there as disciples. And now, even from our vantage point, we know kind of other stuff the Bible's going to say. So when I, let's say, when we hear that Jesus is going to come in with his angels, what do we immediately think of? His second coming, right? Because really, that's what's going to happen. Jesus goes back to being the commander of the army of God. He's got king of kings, lord of lords written on his thigh. He's the intense robe. He's kind of got the blazing eyes. He's got the sword in his hand. And he comes screaming out of the heavens with all of his angels behind him. And he comes to finish the deal, right? Isn't that what we picture? Well, then he just makes this weird statement. Some of you guys who are listening to me are not going to die till that happens. How'd that work out for him? Right? It's 2,000 years later. They're all dead. Is that what he meant? Well, that's certainly what I would have thought if I was listening. And indeed, they did think something like that. But was that what he meant? No, it's not. And the re- one of the major clues is the next three words in Matthew. What are the next three words? You would have skipped right over them. Next three words are what? After six days. You don't get it. Let me ask you a question. How good is Matthew at chronology? If you've been in this lesson for any length of time, Matthew doesn't do chronology. Matthew's a subject topic guy. So he grabs everything kind of Jesus is talking about a given subject and he moves stuff around. He doesn't ever care about trying to tell you what happened in order. So why does he do it now? Why does he suddenly break from his style, stop everything and go, hey, by the way, six days later this occurred? Because he's trying to link the two stories. Whatever occurs next is the fulfillment of that prophecy. All right? Now, if you read Luke, he says eight days later. What's the difference? He counts the pieces of the days on the beginning and the end of the week. So he makes it out to eight as opposed to six. That's the difference. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, with him and led them up on a high mountain by themselves where they were all alone to pray. Now, once again, I'm combining Luke and Mark for us to understand this. Okay, so what did he do? He grabbed the inner three. If he's got three disciples with him, how many are left back at the bottom of the mountain? Math? (laughs) Nine? Okay, great. Fantastic. So there's nine in the ground. Three go up with him. The inner three. These guys are special. They end up making kind of the core of leadership for the early church. And it's who? Peter, James, and John. Now, James and John are brothers. What did they used to do before they were called by Jesus? What was their job? Fishermen. What did Peter used to do? Fishermen. So they have that in common. But there used to be two brother groups, right? It was James and John and Peter and Andrew. Where did Andrew go? Right? It's weird that he doesn't kind of get included into the inner three. There's a reason for it. I don't know what the reason is. But what's fascinating is Andrew's the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. But now we have this inner three. Now, this inner three is going to be pulled aside at least three separate times during Jesus' ministry. One was when Jesus raised the little girl to life. Do you remember that? Jairus' daughter? They got to see that. No one else did. Then they're going to get to see this amazing event. And then they're going to be the ones that are going to get to go deeper into the garden and watch Jesus freak out. Okay? They're going to get to pray with him the night that he is arrested. All right. So... These guys get to see some special stuff. So whatever this story is about, it's a big deal. As a matter of fact, it's such a big deal, Peter will write about it later in one of his letters. Let's take a look at what the story is. It says this. 
There he was, what? Transfigured before them. What does transfigured mean? In Greek, it's metamorpho, which is where we get the word what? Metamorphosis. It means to change in your very form. Something happens to Jesus right there. What did it look like? Well, we know what it looked like. It says, as he was praying, and by the way, a lot of cool stuff happens when you're praying. How did Pentecost get kicked off? They were, they were praying. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His face shone like the sun. His, cl- his clothes became dazzling white as the light. As bright as a flash of lightning, Luke says. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, says Mark. Where have you ever seen a Jesus like that? Revelation. It's what he looks like now. This is the glorified Jesus. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Who? Boop, boop. What? Hey, how you doing? Now, how did they know that it's Moses and Elijah? Because they were wearing jerseys. No, it's not why. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, you look an awful lot like your old brother. That's so weird. Okay. So we got Moses and Elijah. They show up. Why? Why are those two significant? Why did they show up and talk to Jesus? All right. Well, they're talking about the basketball teams of heaven. Got to give them some stats, some numbers. No, they were there very specifically for who they were. What is Moses most well known for? The Ten Commandments. So he is the epitome of the law. God gave the law to man through Moses. So he is the law. Who did I tell you that Elijah was? But the big dog of the prophets. We now have the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament. All focused on who? What have they always been talking about? Jesus. So you're seeing this incredible formation of a point, a concept. That all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament is now directly centered on Jesus. And they're talking. What are they talking about? Well, Luke tells us. It says... They spoke about his exodus in Greek. You ever heard the word before? Sounds a lot like exodus, doesn't it? Which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. What's waiting for him in Jerusalem? Crucifixion. So whatever his exodus is has to do with his crucifixion. Does Moses know anything about an exodus? He's like, hey, that's my word. What are you doing ripping off my word? Right? I'm the Exodus guy. And what was amazing about the Exodus, it went from limitations and bondage to the freedom of the promised land. Right? Isn't that what Exodus means? All right. Well, at least in his context. So Exodus is a moving out from, now Jesus is about to go through an Exodus. He was going to move from this life into after the resurrection into what? But the new life again. So once again, it was nerve-wracking for Moses and the Israelites to go through it. And it's going to be a bit nerve-wracking for Jesus to go through this process. So what are they talking about? They're downloading and giving him the information he needs to know for the next part of his trip. So then what happens? It says this. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Shocked. Okay, every time there's a big prayer meeting, they fall asleep. So don't feel bad. Okay, all the disciples fell asleep. You fall asleep. Hey, we're all same team, right? Nobody can seem to stay awake with Jesus. Apparently he prays really, really long. All right. And everyone's just like, I'm with you, Jesus. And they fall asleep, right? Okay. 
Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, this will wake you up. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, like, so they only got the end of it. They didn't even get to see the whole thing. So sure enough, this is where Elijah and Moses are like, hey, Jesus, I'm out of here. Fist pump. What up? I'm out. Okay. And then they walk out. Right. They're beginning to walk away. And the disciples are like, wait, we don't No, We missed it. What happened? No, you can't leave. So then, of course, somebody who has a loud mouth needs to say something. Okay. So it's got to be, of course, Peter. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Lord, Master, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let's put up three shelters. All right. Like one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then my favorite verse is in parentheses. Luke writes, he did not know what he was saying. (laughs) Mark added on, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Okay, so Peter just starts going off, right? He's just making up stuff. He's like, wait, no, 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 hold on. We'll like make a little shack. It'll be awesome. And I'll put a little roof on it. Okay, the whole time, Jesus is like, (laughs) you don't get it, man. All right, what are you going to build for me? All right, cool. Whatever. All right. And then this is really funny because it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud appeared and enveloped them. It's almost like God's like, he will not stop talking. So I'm just going to cut him off here. Okay. And then it says, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. He's just trying to shut Peter up. I think is what's trying to happen. He just kind of moves in with his massive cloud layer. All right. Where's the last time you heard about a cloud? Old Testament. All right. The Israelites, as they were moving through the desert in the night, they were led by a pillar of what? fire during the day, a pillar of cloud. Okay. When Moses would go to meet with God in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, whenever God would show up, what would descend? A cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God. This is how he chooses to manifest his presence. So now God is descending down, meaning the father is coming down to speak with his son and they're terrified. This is almost like you picture Mount Sinai when Moses had to go up and there was the smoke and the thunder and the the crackles and the fire. You remember all that? And he was nervous about it. When you go into the presence of God, it's a big deal. So this cloud comes over them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I have chosen with whom I love. And with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where have you heard that before? The baptism of Jesus. Remember? Heavens opened, same voice came down. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, and don't be afraid. When they looked up and around, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders. Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what, quote, unquote, rising from the dead meant. And told no one at that time what they had seen. I can just imagine the whole time they're talking about it. What do you think it means about rising from the dead? And Jesus stops and goes, I think it means rising from the dead. Let's go on, okay? I don't know why these guys are getting so tripped up on this language, all right? The disciples asked him, they're on their way down the mountain, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? In other words, if you're going to be the Messiah and do everything you need to do, the Jews have always said that Elijah will come first. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. They didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about who? John the Baptist. So in other words, he said, no, I'm ready to do this. John the Baptist has already come. All right. 
Then comes this crazy story. He's got the three up top. There's nine down below. They emerge down the mountain. And there's this craziness going on at the foot of the mountain. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, when they came to the other disciples, and I'm adding in Luke and Mark, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as, as, soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. When Jesus and the disciples came to the crowd, Jesus asked, what are you arguing with them about? And a man approached Jesus and knelt before him, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. He is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Oh, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. Whenever it seizes him, he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions. It throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid and is suffering greatly. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. I begged your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. When Jesus sent them out two by two, what did he give them the authority to do but to cast out demons? So what's the problem? Now, you can imagine Jesus has just come from this incredible mountaintop experience and it's total chaos down below. He says this, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. You guys understand another reason why our motto here at this church is moving you closer to Christ? Because who ultimately has all the power to do the fixing? It's always Jesus, right? So they brought him. Even while the boy was coming, when the spirit saw Jesus, the demon immediately threw the boy to the ground into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Let me stop real quick. Does Satan mess with kids? You better believe he does. Is that okay with Jesus? Oh, no, it's not. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, obviously you don't know who I am. What do you mean, if you can? Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. His, the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And he was healed from that moment. And Jesus gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? Isn't that a fair question? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, for nothing will be impossible for you. Mark says, this kind can only come out by prayer. You tell me, in your verse, in your NIV, what does verse 21 say, according to Matthew? Prayer and fasting. You guys have that in your Bible? No, it's moved. Okay, 
it goes from 20 to 22. Why? Look at your side note, and then you'll find out. That verse was pulled out because the best Greek manuscripts don't have that verse. Here's what basically would have occurred. As the, as the editors were transcribing and getting the Bible moved down through the ages, someone wanted to make a note edition for things that we needed to know, but it was not part of the original autograph. So he put in, and fasting, because Mark tells us it only comes out by prayer. This guy adds in, and by fasting, but because it's not from the author's hand, NIV said, I'm not putting it in there. So what was likely is that they all knew that when you went into intense prayer of this sort, you would involve the issue of fasting. So it was kind of a little help to us. It says, while everyone was marveling, Luke said, at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Mark adds, they left that place and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And Matthew says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with what? Grief. If he is your best friend and your Lord, do you want to see him die? No. Is it necessary that he does? Yes. And then comes the weirdest addition of stories as we close. Verse 24 says what? After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? You're like, what? What are we talking about taxes? What? Taxes? What are we talking about taxes, right? Okay, here's the deal. He comes down from casting out this incredible demon story. He comes from the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes rolling back into town, and they're worried about taxes. Who do people say that I am? In other words, I think we have something confused, don't we? They're focused on that. What's the two drachma tax? Well, it's the temple tax. What happened is that any Jew, 20 years and older, had to pay an annual fee of two days' wages, which is two drachmas, all right, per person. The thing was, it wasn't mandatory. You didn't have to, but if you didn't pay it, you'd get shunned. So it was kind of like, well, yeah, you got to pay it. These guys come up, and their big problem is trying to trap Jesus again. So does your, your boss pay his taxes? What did Peter say? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus, who knew exactly what the conversation was, was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He said, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Well, from others, Peter replied. Oh, so the sons are exempt, Jesus said. What does he mean? Well, practical analogy. If you have a king that conquers a nation and he imposes taxes, who has to pay the taxes? The people he just took over. Who's not going to be paying taxes? His kids, right? You go, I don't get it. Okay, what kind of tax is it? Temple tax? What did Jesus say when he was 12 years old? When he did not come home with them, the family had to run back and go get him. They found him in the temple and he said, what? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? In other words, that's my dad's house and you're charging me taxes? I'm his kid. That's weird. You obviously don't know who I am. You guys following that? 
But look at verse 27. Doesn't matter whether or not he has the right to opt out. What does it say? But so that we may not offend them. In other words, all right, let's pay our taxes. That's fine. I don't need to. But now I'm going to be focusing on them. All right, Peter, let's do this. This will be fun. Watch this. Go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth. You'll find a four drachma coin. uh, Take it, give it to them for my tax and yours. That'll be fun. Let's go catch a fishy. He'll pay our taxes for us. It'll be awesome. We're really worried about taxes. Come on. It's ridiculous. Go rip it out of a fish's mouth. I don't care. Okay, we'll pay the money. That's not the deal. But do you understand all these assumptions about who he is? And these misrepresentations of who he is. The question comes down to us. Who is he to you? What are you going to do with that? You and I keep saying he's Lord and we're not living like it. So when in the world are our lives going to sync up? Right? In what ways are we even getting in the way in this process? Are we caught up with distractions? Are we the ones that are constantly causing all the problems? Do we not get it? Where is our faith gone? Are we the ones that completely botched the ministry because somewhere along the way we forgot who he is and what he can do? Who you say that he is and what you do with that information is everything. For in Jesus you will find not only your Savior and Lord, but like I said, you'll find the true you. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. And and Father, an encouragement that You love us enough to send Your Son. And Jesus, that You would be here to go through all this grief, to watch people deny You, to watch people reject You, to watch people get distracted from You and miss who You are Father, we are doing that to You. Lord, we are doing that to You. Holy Spirit, we are doing that to You. May our hearts change. May our view change. May we become different. And that as this generation grows, may we see You rightly and worship You properly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.